This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Because often Western Christians have considered themselves the default, right? We're, we're the ones who are the true Christians. And then the other cultures, they experience syncretism. And so we've got to kind of purify them. Well, you know, Western Christians and Western American you know, Christians are as enmeshed in our cultural systems as any, any folks are. This is a podcast about two things helping those with urgent needs in front of us today, and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're learning how to do good better, whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Ken Tanning, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleague, Jamie Ayton, and our producer, Laura Finch. Uh, today, we're thrilled to be talking with Kristen Dumay. Uh, Dr. Dumay is a historian, writer, and professor at Calvin University. Her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Uh, welcome, Kristen. We're so grateful for this time together. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. I'm going to start with a question that's kind of not fair um, to any author who spent a couple years or more on a book and wrote <laughs> several hundred pages. Uh, your book is great, and we might have some people who haven't had a chance to read it yet. Uh, the book is great, and it's also created some some heated discussion, which has been been good to see. It's it's getting a reaction. So, just wanted to start and say for people who haven't read it yet, uh, what what is your main thrust? What's the main thesis of your book? Essentially, it's a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism over the last half century or so that uh, looks at evangelicalism as a popular culture, uh, not just as a theology, and looks at how particular ideals of gender have been intertwined with militarism and have shaped uh, evangelicals' political allegiances and cultural identity. And it brings it up to the present, really, to uh, answer the question, you know, how could so many white evangelicals end up supporting somebody like Donald Trump? And the answer it gives is this is we really shouldn't see this as a betrayal of evangelical values. In many ways, it's the culmination of many of the core values that evangelicals have held dear. And Kristen, I wonder, could you follow up a little bit more on, you talked here about um, looking at from both a popular cultural perspective as well as a theological one. Can you kind of break those two, um, two paths kind of down for us? Yeah, you know, when uh, you ask an evangelical a, a leader what it is to be an evangelical, they'll, they'll often point to theology. So evangelicals believe in the authority of the scriptures and conversionism or this born-again experience, crucicentrism or the centrality of the cross, and evangelism and activism. So they're acting out of these faith commitments. Uh, but when you look at evangelicals uh, more broadly, what you see is uh, theology is often not central to their identity. Uh, and uh, especially when you start looking at you know, who identifies as, as an evangelical, here you can see that race matters an awful lot. You'll, there'll be a lot of black Protestants in this country who can check off all those theological
theological boxes, but absolutely don't identify as evangelical because it's clear to them that there's so much more to being an evangelical than just a kind of theological rubric. And in fact, when you look at survey data, uh, the evangelicals themselves uh, run uh, and ask, ask questions and, and you come up with you know, high numbers of evangelicals are theologically illiterate and uh, in fact hold to views traditionally seen as, as heresy. And so as a cultural historian, I had to ask, you know, given what we see, uh, is it, does it make sense to put uh, uh, theology at the center of what it means to be an evangelical, even if a lot of pastors would like it to be, uh, and instead uh, look at, at broader issues of identity, of, uh, of, of um, uh, social views, and of um, participating in communities, in networks, in these kind of ministry networks, of participating in a consumer culture. So, you know, one way to think about it is you might be an evangelical if you shopped at a Christian bookstore, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if you listen to contemporary Christian music, if uh, you read Christian publishing. These are the sorts of things that really form evangelical identity, and those are the things I think that we should take very seriously. And asking for a friend, what about a hypothetical Christian podcast? Um, would that also fit into that category? Oh, podcasts. I mean, when I was writing this book, I was I was you know, aware that they existed. I had no idea how many evangelical podcasts there are. And I think I've been on the majority of them at this point. Uh, but yeah, you know, this is it. There's there's a, a community. And I think that's partly the reception of my book, too, is because it, it, it covers this popular history of evangelical. Evangelicalism. It's the everyday evangelicalism. And so many people read it and say, oh, I remember that book, or yep, I listened to that that band, or this is kind of their evangelicalism. And, and so it, it connects really viscerally, I think, uh, and with a lot of readers who lived this. Part of what Jamie and I lived that our younger colleagues here are a little um impressed or horrified by is that part of our experience was listening to Striper as we were <laughs> uh, growing up. So that's uh, where we were. <laughs> so I went to a Christian school uh, in Iowa and my Christian, very Christian, conservative Christian music teacher uh, told us that Striper was of the devil because he, he thought, he actually thought it was pronounced stripper. And so <laughs> had all these additional like innuendos. And so anyway, that's that's, that's my striper story. <laughs> that's, great. that's great. I saw them live with our youth group at the oh. Disney World, which is sort of the height of, wow. uh, you know, like their Christian youth group night that Disney <laughs> yes. would do once, once a year. Um, <laughs> all right. We won't go too deep into this. We'll be, we'll be we could. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you, uh, uh, it's, it's so helpful to hear this. And I think we actually... I uh, talked with Mark Knoll recently on the podcast, and the, there's the theological side. And then you said, I guess he was breaking it down some of this, the populism side, you know, of evangelicalism that comes with this. And, and uh, you explained this really well. Could you talk a little bit more about the kind of rugged masculinity and Christian nationalism that you talk about? Like we hear those terms, and for some, it's going to, it sounds like a really bad thing. Others, oh, that sounds like a, a potentially good thing with some harm, but can you just unpack both of those terms uh, on, you know, what's the, is there any good? Is it just bad? Like, what do you mean as when you talk about those things? 
Yeah, so uh, kind of the, the the crux of Jesus and John Wayne is seeing how this uh, ideal of rugged masculinity connects to Christian nationalism. So it's 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 really holding them both together. And so what I show in the book is how particular ideals of masculinity uh, were elevated by conservative evangelicals during the Cold War era in a way that initially didn't um, set them apart from other Americans all that much in the 19, late 40s and, and 1950s and into the 1960s. Um, and that's when a lot of Americans were pro-war, right? Cold War, anti-communist. And that's when kind of traditional um, gender roles were all the rage, leave it to beaver era. And then in the 1960s, things start to really unravel. You have the feminist movement challenging gender roles, and you have the anti-war movement, and you also have the civil rights movement kind of disrupting the status quo, particularly for Southerners. And and that's when evangelicals really double down on these values and uh, over against other Americans. And they, they see other Americans kind of as a threat to traditional gender roles and to American uh, power. Uh, and so if you look at all those issues, it's actually the assertion of white patriarchal authority that is the solution. And, and that's when you have this ideal of kind of rugged masculinity and a real emphasis on gender difference emerge in evangelical uh, literature and, and sermons. So it's not just that there are some differences between women and men, but really seeing uh, women and men as opposites. So men are strong, women are weak, men are leaders, women are submissive, they're followers. Men like sports, women don't, right? Uh, as James Dobson says, men and women are different in every cell of their bodies. And and then you see this kind of separation of the virtues, of Christian virtues. So, you know, strength or courage or so on, that's all masculine and gentleness and kindness and self-control. Those get labeled feminine and those actually interfere with what it is to be a, you know, testosterone-filled man as, as God created man to be protector and defender. And, and so that's kind of the, the story that I tell. And then we can see how that gets wrapped up in, you know, uh, that God has called men to be protectors and defenders of the church, of orthodoxy, but also of America, of Christian America. And so it's very pro-military in the Vietnam War era, uh, pro-war. And, and that ends up giving a, a different shape to Christianity itself. It's not just that it transforms ideas of masculinity, but it ends up transforming Christianity itself into this kind of us versus them, uh, uh, kind of militaristic, uh, militant faith, rather than one that really privileges uh, servanthood and loving one's neighbor as oneself, turning the other cheek, loving one's enemies, and so forth. As we come out about out of that and kind of the shifting slightly, but coming out of that and the us them seeing that dynamic at play um, makes me think about how we you know help others, don't help others. You mentioned the gender issues. Um, could you talk a little bit? And this is a self interest question because what we do here at Humanitarian Disaster Institute focused on justice issues. But you know, what about evangelicals' relationship with justice issues and um, you know, you talk about gender and about race there, and I almost want to pull back. We could think about issues of immigration and refugees, like pulling back what, what has evangelicalism gotten right and wrong about different justice issues, and what's at the root of that? That's a big question, but 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, first to say, even when we talk about evangelicals, you know, what have evangelicals got right and wrong? There's there's always diversity within evangelicalism, within white evangelicalism, and within conservative white evangelicalism, as you all know. Um, so I think it's important just to keep that in mind. Um, but over time, when it came to things like foreign policy, for a long time, evangelical foreign policy really was framed in terms of this kind of Cold War militarism. And uh, and then with the end of the Cold War, things were kind of up for grabs. And I think the 1990s is such an interesting decade to look back to. And that's when evangelicals were questioning this kind of patriarchal gender roles. And you have the Promise Keepers movement and servant leadership and soft patriarchy. Um, but on the global stage, too, you have an emphasis on, on some global justice issues. You have uh, attention to the global persecution of Christians mm. and to things like global poverty and anti-trafficking. And and so that certainly is part of evangelical history as well. Uh, what we do see, though, just uh, take one example in the case of attention to the global persecution of Christians, um, it, it, it can slip quite easily into not just helping Christians out there, but also demonizing non-Christians, particularly when many of the Christians who are, who are being persecuted were um, uh, you know, in predominantly um, Muslim countries, mm-hmm. and that ends up fueling Islamophobia. But what we also see happening is this um, attention to the global persecution of Christians actually feeds a persecution narrative in the United States as well, that Christians are are persecuted, are embattled, are endangered. And, and just as they had with foreign policy and militarism, they embrace this idea of kind of preemptive war. Uh, before they get us, whoever the they is, uh, we need to strike first. You don't want to leave yourselves vulnerable, whether the they happens to be communists, or you know, Muslims, or uh, or uh, uh, or liberals, or um, secular humanists, right? And so it, it's this it's this kind of aggressive posture, and um, we can certainly see that taking hold when it comes to something like immigration too. Um, I mean, we have to talk about race, and we have to talk about um, this kind of us versus them mentality. And for uh, for generations, evangelicals have embraced this idea that that they are um, kind of God's um, special representatives, that they get the faith right, as opposed to liberals, mainliners, and that they have a special role to play to keep American Christianity pure and to keep America strong. And and um, we could talk theology, things like presuppositionalism, the idea that, you know, evangelicals have access to God's truth, whereas others do not. And so you should not entrust others with authority or with power. And you should be very suspicious uh, when it comes to outsiders, however you define, you know, who is inside and who is outside. And and you see this um, in, in terms of evangelical politics, but also the suspicion towards the outsider. And um, so on the one hand, you know, evangelicals pride themselves as being Bible-believing Christians, and the Bible is filled with passages calling for uh, for, for us to welcome the, the stranger, the foreigner. And um, that should be a, a pretty clear mandate. In fact, what we see is evangelicals, white evangelicals, are among the least likely of all Americans uh, to to embrace refugees mm-hmm. and immigrants, and they are the strongest proponents of building a wall. And, um, and and that has to do with kind of their identity of who is with us, 
who is against us, who is a real American, who is a threat to Christian America. And there we have to look at religion and we have to look at race and we have to look at national identity. So much there to unpack. You know, you were talking a lot about those in-group, out-group differences and who's a real American or who's not. But wanted to take that conversation even just a little deeper about, you know, one of the things I've noticed um, seeing some of the comments on your Twitter, uh, um, that there's also sometimes, I think within evangelicalism, also like who's a real evangelical versus not an evangelical or maybe an elitist evangelical or whatever term, you know, I, I had a, I started receiving death threats after speaking out, encouraging the vaccine um, for COVID-19, you know, so, so know that, you know, you can be sometimes on the other end of that conversation. Can you help us understand what's going on at that level? Mm, Yeah, I'm sorry that that was your experience. I know that can be um, really, really stressful, really difficult. And of course, uh, those threats are um, intended to silence people and to make it just not worth the trouble. Um, So, uh, you know, I think that there has always been a lot of gatekeeping within evangelicalism. And, uh, And so, you know, the people who are allowed to even speak into issues have to pass all sorts of litmus tests. And so if you don't have the right, uh, I don't know, theory of Christ's atonement, uh, that you can be on the outs. Um, but really, uh, in, in recent decades, it's, it's, it's more been around, you know, rather than these esoteric kind of theological conversations, a lot of evangelicals, conservative evangelicals are able to kind of smooth over, you know, different views of baptism, uh, different views of uh, spiritual gifts, cessationism, and so on. But uh, not so much when it comes to issues of gender and sexuality. Those have really emerged as kind of key gatekeeping issues. But increasingly in, in recent years, also, you know, just straight up politics. Uh, mm-hmm. So support for Trump or not, uh, you know, views on COVID and vaccines, uh, that these have really moved to the center. Now, again, there's a long history of evangelical gatekeeping uh, before, you know, if you weren't a complementarian, you were not really welcomed into an organization called the Gospel Coalition, right? You know, right. which raises the question, what is the gospel then? Right. And and to me, in these spaces, it's it's interesting because I don't identify as an evangelical, even though I, I certainly had more than you know, I, I had a foot in evangelical culture, like I said. But I grew up in a confessionally reformed uh, Dutch immigrant community. I'm Christian reformed. My dad's a theology professor. My mom was an immigrant from the Netherlands. Right. So I, I had a very distinctive space where I, I, I was different from evangelicals. But I'm I'm, you know very uh, deeply Christian. I attend a church, you know, multiple times a week. I uphold, you know, I confess the Nicene Creed. And so it's really interesting to be in these conversations today uh, where, you know, evangelicals are trying to um, discredit my historical scholarship by questioning my faith, hmm. which is um, difficult for a couple of reasons. First of all, I can defend my faith. I, I, I am not conservative evangelical. I'm not a complementarianism. I don't want to pre- I'm not a complementarian. I don't want to pretend to be. Um, and so I'll have those conversations and kind of expose how they are defining Christianity uh, and then contest that and historicize it. But then I also want to say, look, I'm also a historian and we have um, we have scholarly practices 
uh, where we can assess wherever somebody is coming from, whatever core beliefs they hold to. We have historical methods. And please, you know, take a look at my work on its merits. And thus far, it's been really quite shocking how few, very few conservative evangelical leaders are able to do so. Hmm. Or willing, or willing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I should say. To talk a little bit more about how you've gained insight, that's in, like that you had like sort of one foot in, but also part of a different tradition that can you know, give perspective, um, gives you perspective on understanding what's happening as you look at this. And then you're coming to it as a historian. Like you said, that's really mm-hmm. helpful for us to understand your analysis. You also mentioned um, just recently, I saw you mentioned something about missiology and how you learned yeah. from missiologists and missiology. You know, it's it's not what we do in our humanitarian disaster work, but it's related in this kind of going out and serving and being in other places. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was really interested to hear more about how missiology has helped you to understand as a historian in your discipline and then also specifically this topic. Mm -hmm. I should say, even before I was introduced to missiologists, I, I, um, as a high schooler, I was an exchange student in Germany for a year, Mm -hmm. uh, full immersion. Uh, This was before we had uh, you know, social media, uh, we could stay in touch with folks. And uh, so I was I was really just on my own for a year, really, and immersed in a different culture. And by the end of that year, I'd become deeply curious about my own culture and upbringing. And I think that's a critical starting point in many ways. Um, and then, and then, yeah, in, in college, I was introduced to the work of Leslie Newbegin, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And it just made so much sense to me that, um, uh, you know that that there is a truth, a biblical truth, and 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 the reality of Christ is is both outside of history and then known to us in history. And and then I'm a Calvinist. You can throw that in the mix too. So you know, for any of us, our the extent to which we ascertain that truth is is always somewhat limited because of of our own capacities and then our own fallenness. We are finite and we are fallen creatures. And so we are clinging to the truth. We are professing this truth that we understand you know, through a glass darkly. Um, and we are placing our hope in that. But we, I think in my tradition, don't give too much, uh, or at least in certain elements of my tradition, too much um, emphasis on absolute certainty, so much confidence that we or that I personally have everything exactly right. So in the Reformed tradition, there's a long history of a kind of vibrant intellectual life. I mean, even at Calvin University where I teach, we love, you know, we don't do short memos on any topic that comes up. We're likely to issue a 170-page single-space, you know, <laughs> position paper, and then, and then we revise it every year. <laughs> this is what we do. And we do so not just looking at the scriptures and not just tapping our theologians, but we bring, uh, it's very interdisciplinary, right? Liberal Arts College, we bring our psychologists to say, what what do we know about the human body and mind? And, and, and we bring the biologists, then we bring uh, the historians. So how has this changed over time? Not because historians have the answers, but historians can help us ask better questions, right? And, and historians can help us begin to parse, um, you know, what is kind of timeless and eternal and, and not a lot when you look at kind of human history, um, but how have Christians over time understood the scriptures 
And there's a lot of variation. And then why in one moment do they interpret you know, passages in one way and in another moment differently? Missiology kind of does the same thing, except instead of across time, it's it's across cultures. Uh, and so, so understanding how the gospel is received, uh, incarnated, if you will, in particular local contexts is deeply illuminating. And then what somebody like Newbegin does is he turns this back on Western missionary culture. And, you know, because often Western Christians have considered themselves the default, right? We're, we're the ones who are the true Christians. And then the other cultures, they experience syncretism. And so we've got to kind of purify them. Well, you know, Western Christians and Western American you know, Christians are as enmeshed in our cultural systems as any any folks are. And that brings us humility and it should bring, bring a great curiosity. And we can, um, uh, you know, be curious, ask how might our cultural allegiances or preferences shape how we read the scriptures and in some cases maybe obscure the truth of the scriptures. And to understand that, we have to talk to people who are different from us. We have to read insights on theology and human culture from people who have seen the world through different eyes. And to me, that's just been kind of common sense part of my upbringing. And it absolutely kind of gels with how I am, really how historians, how we all do our work, which is always attentive to context. Well, Kristen, you you had asked the question, you know, about um, what is timeless. Well, if there was ever a timeless book title, I think it's yours <laughs> of, of Jesus and John Wayne. So, in preparing for our interview, I actually was doing some research out there to see is there a book award for best title. Um, the closest thing I could find was oddest title, which I don't think that quite fits what you have. So, if any publishers are out there listening, that's definitely you know best title award is something that needs to be considered here. Um, but more seriously, what was kind of behind this title for you? How did that kind of evolve? What's the story behind it? Yeah, I didn't start off with this title. Uh, my working title for the book when, as I was writing it was Onward Christian Warriors. But there, there's so many titles that are like Kingdom Warriors or I mean, from the, the books that, themselves that I studied on Christian manhood that I needed something that would set it apart. And and then uh, in, in over time, I started realizing how I mean, first of all, these books on Christian manhood that were a dime a dozen, really starting in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, how how much they were citing not scriptures and not doing careful exegesis, but instead they were looking to Hollywood heroes for models of masculinity. Um, people like Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. And if I could have squeezed that into a title, somehow I would have. Um, but also John Wayne kept popping up, which I thought, you know, seriously. Uh, <laughs> and so I just started gathering, you know, all of the dimensions that that I, I saw. And I thought maybe I can work with this. And when it came time to really pick a title, I I, I, I suggested that to my editor. And at first, he wasn't wasn't 100% sold, um, thought there was a better title out there. We never found that better title. And, and I'm really happy with, with it because it's catchy, for one. <laughs> you can remember it. My name is not particularly catchy, and it's impossible to spell and pronounce, so I needed a, a very easy handle. But also, the John Wayne in, in the title, it points to... Um, uh, the importance of popular culture here very well. And it also points to this tension between the sacred and the secular, right? The evangelicals are drawing from a kind of secular culture uh, to craft what then, you know, they package and sell as Christian 
masculinity, Christian manhood, and then that in itself, it, it ends up shaping Christianity itself. And so that that's what I really wanted to convey, that this is, this is about popular culture and that there's a tension here between the sacred and the secular. And I think that the title does that well. Plus, I was told, I published with a trade press, and so they have kind of different rules. And very early on in the in the titling process, they said that we weren't allowed to use the words masculinity or militarism because they were too long. <laughs> and so that was a dilemma because I've always considered it my book on masculinity and militarism. And so we had to get a little creative, and John Wayne kind of, you know, uh, uh, does a lot of work in the title. <laughs> That's great. It is a really good title. Um as you talk about that populism, when you know, and some of these this masculinity, one of the things that we keep seeing, unfortunately, you know, time and time again, is a, a pastoral abuse in different churches. So you're turning a little bit more serious, but we'd love for you know, as we keep seeing these stories, often it's sexual abuse. It's not only sexual abuse that keeps on coming up um, among leaders in this movement in our movement. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Just help us understand it historically. As a historian, when you see this happening, I would think it, it you know, ties into a lot of things you've been touching on, but it seems important to take a few minutes just on, specifically on this issue that we're, mm-hmm. we're going through. Yeah, when I first started researching evangelical masculinity and militarism, it was actually more than 15 years ago, and then I ended up setting the project aside for a time. But in that intervening decade, I um, I didn't stop paying attention to some of the authors and preachers that I had, I had initially been exploring. And in what I saw is one after another uh, became implicated in scandals, in abuse of power, in the case of Mark Driscoll, uh, in in sexual abuse, either um, as 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 perpetrators or as defenders of their friends who were perpetrators. And uh, I just started keeping notes, I, and I kept track of things. And this was pre Me Too era, pre Church Too, and so. Uh, I, but I was I was reading survivor blogs and. And just tracking these stories, and I started to see uh, consistent patterns emerge of not so much, my focus wasn't even on the perpetrators so much as it was on the communities, on how evangelical, uh, or just ordinary folks would end up defending the perpetrator and blaming the victim time and again, just horrifying examples, even when we're talking young children, or how, you know, a, a... a man accused of sexual misconduct, his wife would be blamed for not meeting his sexual needs, you know, in the case of Ted Haggard, for example. And and then when I went back to the uh, literature on sexuality, like these sex manuals that evangelicals uh, were kind of a big deal in the 60s and 70s and actually still are today, a huge market for these things. Uh, and I, I, I read them. It was, it was actually quite horrifying because I saw that these teachings were embedded in, in this popular literature on how it's up to a, a woman to protect purity and kind of, well, boys will be boys and you can't expect men to restrain themselves, again, filled with testosterone. And so it's really up to the woman to not tempt men who are not their husbands. And it's up to wives to meet their husbands every sexual need. And so just whatever happens, 
there's a woman to blame. And I saw that and it was, it was really shocking. And it helped me make sense of these repeated patterns that we were seeing and continue to see in evangelical communities where victims are blamed. Uh, quick forgiveness is demanded. And, you know, in the name of protecting the man's ministry, protecting the witness of the church. Uh, but it, it really is, is horrific to see, uh, the effects on on survivors. And, and I've talked to many survivors since this book has come out too. And there are, you know, they talk about essentially like two levels of trauma. First, the abuse itself. But for many, what's even harder to grapple with is the way that they've been treated by their religious communities. Mm -hmm. And, and Mm -hmm. I think that this book kind of puts, um, puts that in a a longer context. Mm Mm-hmm. Such, such wise words and something that we all need to take to heart. And in your last uh, response right before this one, you talked some about the importance of humility. And so I just want to call out that, you know, Kent and I fall into the category of white males, evangelical in our 40s. Um, you know, so we kind of hit like all of those markers <laughs> that can be problematic. Jamie, so, Jamie, had, actually, Jamie actually has a John Wayne poster in his office. As well. <laughs> no, he, does, he doesn't. He doesn't. I, I don't have that, but I, I, I may or may not have a cowboy hat somewhere in the closet um, at home. But, um, but with all seriousness, though, you know, I think you've raised so many important um, thoughts here. And, you know, I had shared with Kent that the one thing I really wanted for Christmas this year, and I told my family, was your book. And, you know, so I was reading it over break. And as I was reading it, it was just like seeing, you know, dots connected, thinking like, oh, my goodness, that makes so much sense. Or I understand now, you know, something I couldn't put my finger on, but also made me aware of some blind spots that I still have in my own life. And so Kent and I, before we kind of go into our quick five questions and Kent will kick that off, we wanted to kind of ask, like, as white evangelical men, what do you hope we would kind of take from your book? And what are the types of lessons that we really need to take to heart here? Oh, thank you for asking that question. And I, I do want to say that there, if you're just on Twitter and if you just see the kind of um, flashpoints <laughs> that Twitter is so great to you know put into your feed, it will look like, you know, white evangelical men are my enemies <laughs> or certainly trying to take down the book. There are some who are trying to take down the book and me, uh, but that has not been my experience for the most part uh, from very early on when this book first published. I saw conservative white complementarian pastors saying, hey, guys, we need to read this. We need to grapple with this. They have been some of my staunchest defenders on social media and in their own congregations, in their own. I've been on so many podcasts (laughs) with with, uh, Mm -hmm. evangelical pastors who are bringing my work into their spaces. And I am so deeply appreciative of that. And it is honestly evangelicals themselves who made this book into a bestseller. And so I, I, I try to put that out as often as I can, uh, because, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of, uh, opponents who are trying to take it down get a lot of attention and the media is drawn to them as well. But I'm so grateful for the introspection and humility with which so many evangelical men have received this book. So a few, a few lessons, maybe, um, you know, to think, like you said, these blind spots, right? All good intentions, but the ways in which maybe you as a white man uh, and maybe well-educated or maybe with certain privileges or positions of power may not have eyes to see 
all of the dynamics within your communities. Whereas a woman entering those spaces, certain boundaries um, and barriers are going to be immediately apparent to her. Trust me. Anybody who is not white moving into white evangelical spaces are going to see the whiteness and see how much of this is a cultural identity, right? And and if if that doesn't make sense to you, ask any person of color who has been in a white evangelical space. I mean, the, the response of many white evangelicals to this book is kind of shock. Like, how could I not have seen this? You know, this mm-hmm. is the story of my life. And the, the response from the vast majority of black Christians who have been in evangelical spaces is like, yep. pretty much right no surprises here um so so you know listening to people who are different from you uh thinking about where boundaries and barriers have been erected and and moving outside of those whether that's around you know racial boundaries much of the american church is uh you know maybe on on social issues, LGBTQ, these are, you know, not to necessarily agree on every issue, but certainly to to listen and to go into those spaces. One other thing that I would say is on this question of deference. Um, as I was researching this book, I came to see how much uh, deference to authority was demanded in evangelical spaces, in particularly among leaders. Uh, and so a pastor needs, uh, certainly expects to have deference shown to him. But then when you get into these kind of networks and organizations and you can kind of see this pecking order emerge, who's on the main stage at this conference and whose books are you know, being published and marketed and blurbed by whom. And, and you can kind of see that deference is owed and, and that deference is, is kind of cloaked with, um, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's friendly. It's you're my brother in Christ and patting each other on the back and supporting each other. And again, looks on the surface, like lovely virtues, but it can also be used in a way that can end up being quite toxic of, um, kind of owing loyalty and never questioning when somebody does step out in line. Because if you do question those above you in this pecking order, you're not going to get your book published. You're not going to get invited on that main stage. And and you're going to be on the outs. And so I've just seen in my research so many compromises that end up being made uh, out of deference to those with power. And then when, when there is a scandal, when there is an, a situation where that power is abused, there are very few people who are positioned in a way that they are they can speak out bravely against that, even against their you know, quote unquote brother in Christ. Thanks, Kristen. That's great for understanding the the big picture dynamic, and also for for you know for me for us to keep being reminded of this kind of humility and need to learn um, and. And yeah, and to have, like you said, eyes to see and asking others and listening well so we have better eyes to see more. Um, wanted to end with five quick questions that we like to ask every guest. Um, we do it backwards on this podcast. We start with the heavy questions and then go to the small talk, in, unlike, uh, <laughs> unlike most situations. But I um, wanted to ask first, what is something you're currently reading that you'd like to tell us about? I am currently reading, oh, first of all, I'm always reading evangelical uh, romance novels for my next book, uh, but I, I'm also right now reading um, Bonhoeffer's Life Together, and that's what I'm reading with my church uh, this Lent. Thanks. And what's a book you've given away more than others over the years? 
Oh, man, a book that I've given away. Uh, so the first one that comes to mind, which is what I'm, I've got to go with, which is not going to make me sound very Christian-y at all, but um, I, I've been <laughs> uh, giving away and recommending a book on writing uh, before and after the book deal because uh, I'm getting a whole lot of requests from other writers and scholars of how did you do what you did? And I, I actually Googled my way through the whole publishing process, working with a trade publisher with an agent. And then uh, after the fact, I discovered this really wonderful book that that walks you through. And so I have conversations with other writers. And then I say, you know, here's this book, you really need to read this. Do you mind telling us what the book was? Yeah, it's, it's called Before and After the Book Deal. Okay, nice. Very good. It's a good practical one. Yes. Um, and next, are there any um, apps or productivity trips, tricks or anything you're using right now that you're finding especially helpful? No, I need some though. Definitely. What I really need is to go off Twitter. That would be the biggest productivity boost, yes. obviously, to anybody on Twitter. What are those memos that you guys write? Right, right. Too. Yeah, I try to stay off committees as much as possible. I do not have a good productivity app. I'm, I'm very, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a luddite when it comes to technology, and so I'm, you know, I use Word. <laughs> that's about it. But um, if you have a good recommendation, let me know because I, I think I need one. <laughs> well, um, wondering what's uh, maybe something you've been listening to or watching um, recently that you've enjoyed. Mm, okay. Oh, so I um, two things that I watch. I so I don't have a lot of spare time. I will say that much. So when I do watch something, it's it's with my uh, my daughter. It's our bonding time at the end of the night. Um, she's in eighth grade. And so we have two go-to um, uh, kind of series. One, Shit's Creek. So I will be judged there harshly, I'm sure. But <laughs> <laughs> it opens up for all kinds of conversations. Uh, really good, uh, you know, mother-daughter uh, uh, conversations. It sparks it. It's just really funny. And, I mean, I don't know where I'd get my gifts otherwise. So, <laughs> um, so Shit's Creek is a regular. That's kind of our comfort watch. But another thing we watched recently, which was really kind of traumatic and hilarious was I saw on Twitter when it first released a lot of religion scholars talking about the Netflix series Midnight Mass. <laughs> and and I thought, oh, they're, you know, saying, oh, there's there's these religious themes. I thought, okay, I should watch it. Um, so I told my daughter, let's let's watch this show Midnight Mass. Knew nothing about it. Now, I don't know if you guys have watched I it. Don't know, no, I don't know anything about uh -huh. it. Okay, I didn't think so. Or you would have been laughing by now. <laughs> <laughs> No, this is the problem. I cannot, I cannot give you any spoilers. But um, for for any of your listeners who have watched it, you know um, that I was not prepared for what was to come. <laughs> Nor was my daughter, who 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 does not watch any horror or anything like that. But once we were in, we were in, and she became obsessed with it, and and I did, and it just became this like amazing experience for us. And certainly, as a religion scholar, to think about faith through that lens was pretty amazing. So honestly, everything that we've watched since then, this was a couple of months ago, has just paled in comparison. And so I will leave it at that. 
my daughter and her friends are kind of into like scary movies right now. And I'm such a wimp with scary movies. So now I'm like, okay, that'd be good. We could watch it together and I won't be able to fall asleep at night. So I'm kind of torn. <laughs> yes. yes. And again, I, I can't believe I just, I just gave out two suggestions that will, uh, will, will have me judged harshly. <laughs> what am I doing? I don't know. <laughs> um, and last question we like to ask this for, for ourselves, people are interested in also with the grad students we work with always thinking about burnout and just stepping into intense places but what do you do to renew your body and mind and it sounds like maybe this is part of a time with family and watching things but anything else you do to renew yourself yeah. for the work i'm i'm really bad at this i'm terrible with self-care i don't <laughs> so um no I, I mean honestly the last two years have been so incredibly intense and i i, I haven't been able to keep up with emails with interviews with with um uh with my life really and I kept thinking it was just a season it was you know it's going to be three months then it was going to be six months and mm -hmm. then now we're going on two years and so I have to I have to develop some better practices uh so I guess one of the things that I've I've done more recently is is just carving out time first thing in the morning to go to the gym to swim uh, if I, if I'm swimming, I'm away from my phone. And so that's a good <laughs> discipline. And, you know, I have three kids and so they will interrupt me, uh, whether I want <laughs> them to or not. And so really just to embrace that time and, and, and to be present when I am with them as much as possible. And that's really, I mean, I don't have me time, but I have so much joy hanging out with my kids and I have an eight year old who is just an absolute delight and I just center myself often when I'm hanging out with her and just think she is incredible and hilarious and again a delight and so just being present in those moments so no I don't go to the spa I don't really have <laughs> I don't meditate I don't do anything I just I just enjoy um you know the people around me that's great well Kristen it's been a delight speaking of delight a delight to get to spend this time with you and we're just so grateful for the work you're doing to help us understand what's happening in the country, help us what's happening within, um, you know, the subculture uh, here for some will be to understand it from the outside for others of us. It's so we can be self-reflective to keep on trying to grow in faithfulness. So thank you for the, for the important work you're doing. Really grateful for this conversation. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Kristen. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, love getting to talk with people who are really good at their discipline and take it seriously as Kristen does as a historian. And then when it gives us a chance to understand these broader movements around us and also a chance for self-reflection, that last question that Jamie asked um, for us to be self-reflective about any, any groups that we're part of as well as our own interactions. So uh, I'm grateful for this, grateful for the importance of of history and historical insight uh, that can also be part of what we're trying to do together here, which is to do good better. Uh, thanks for being with us. Learn more about the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, including our graduate degree and trauma certificate at the link in our show notes. You can attend the program online or in person and stay in touch. You can email us at producer at bettersamaritan.com. Thanks so much for bringing us along on your journey as we all endeavor to do good better.